So let's pray and ask the Lord to, to open our eyes and ears to this morning's message. Heavenly Father, we come before you now again to ask that you open our hearts and ears to what you have to say to us, Lord. Help us to understand um, what it is that you want to, that you're revealing to us, that you want to reveal to us, Lord. How this applies to days that are happening now, to prophecy being fulfilled, and how it just, and also just how it applies to us, Lord. How, what we can take out of this personally and what we can learn, Lord. Lord, we want to understand you more. We want to just love you more. And, and Lord, just, I just ask that you just remove all the mental blocks, all the things that are distracting us, all the things that are happening at home and at work, and just um, open our eyes and ears to see you this morning. Lord, use me also just to speak your truth, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As he, was going, as he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. As they were walking around the temple complex, it finally dawns on them, how magnificent of a building it is, how beautiful of a building it is, and how the architecture, the, how ornate it was, and, and it, it just finally hits them. Now, if you guys, just to give you a little bit of history about the Second Temple, it was one of the greatest architectural buildings in the ancient world. In Ezra 6.15, we're told that the Jewish temple was first rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra, and it became the main place of Jewish worship for 1,000 years. Now, when Herod the Great came along, he expanded and improved on that temple during his reign. And because of that, it was also known as Herod's Temple. Now, some scholars estimate that by today's standard, if it was built on today's economy and, and it would be, that temple would be worth over $1 trillion. That's a lot of money. I mean, I think spaceships, rockets are, you know, just as expensive, I don't know, but this is just a temple. It had brass gates 130 feet high, stones 40 feet long and 20 feet thick, and it was nearly 500 yards long and 400 yards wide. Grand, magnificent building. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that the temple was covered from the outside with gold plates that when the sun shone, it just, you know, it made that temple just shine brightly. And, um, and where there wasn't any gold, there were blocks of marble that were pure white. And from far away, on a clear day, it looked like the, that temple had just was covered in snow. It was just, you know, it was a great, it was a great image to, to see from afar. Now, though it may, it, may not, it may seem like it, this wasn't the first time the disciples had been to the temple. They all grew up in the region. They all, you know, had, you know within walking distance. 
and um, more than likely, having lived within walking distance, <coughs> it was common for Jewish families to visit Jer Jerusalem during one of the six main Jewish festivities, especially during fa uh, the Passover. So they, more than likely, they've been there. You know, it's kind of like going to Western Playland. I mean, more than likely, all of us have been there every, you know, once in a while, um, or once in, in our time that we've been here. I think we've been, in our 10 years, we've been there once or twice. But, um, but yeah, it was something that they commonly did, and most of the villages and cities were really um, nearby. A lot of them did a lot of walking back then. So uh, they knew the temple, they've been there. But it just seems that this was the first time they actually paid attention to it. They actually paid attention to the temple. Now again, let me ask you, have you ever been at a large theme park? And it may not be Western Playland, but something bigger, maybe Disneyland, Disney World, you know, um, great, uh, what's that one in Orlando also, the Universal Studios. Um, or have you ever been inside a tall building um, uh, like just several times, a bunch of times. And you're so caught up, caught off guard, or so caught up in seeing everything else in that park or in the building or in the building that you just don't pay attention to the park or to the building itself. But next time you go, if you've never done that, next time you go, think about spending some time paying attention to the details that makes that place so amazing, that made, makes that place so historical and why so many people want to go visit it. I know that every time my, f my family and I, we visit, a every time we go to a new city to visit it, we try to spend some time walking around downtown or walk around um, some of the parks, um, some of the main places. And when we do, I just find myself really admired, admiring, you know, just some of these buildings, some of these amazing, um, um, the architecture of these buildings. Some, I've, I've seen some pretty, pretty crazy stuff. You know, I do, I find myself admiring the parks, the stadiums, the buildings. You know, for example, in New York, when we went to New York, I was really impressed with the Empire State Building when we went there. You may not be, but I was. I was like, wow, this place is pretty cool. I was looking at the elevators, I was looking at the halls, the building, just paying attention. You know, um, in Chicago, it was the Willis Tower. You know, they have a, one of the top floors, they have that little place where it's like glass, like see-through glass. Um, so you can step into it and it looks like you can see all the way down to the bottom and, you know, but that place also has a lot of history and that really impressed me. And just recently, past few years, um, I wanna say about two, three years ago, we were in Southern California, uh, we were in Northern California. Um, and we went to, went to WrestleMania for, uh, for an event in, in San Jose or Santa Clara with a 49ers play at that stadium. And it was, you know, it's a brand new stadium and I was just completely also impressed with how beautiful and how, uh, how well that stadium was built. Um, not that I, again, I mean, not that I would go there. I'm not a 49er fan at all, but um, still, being there, you're just like, oh, wow, this place is, and just seeing everyone just cheering. It was, it was a neat experience. And again, but each time I found myself thinking what the disciples were saying, what massive stones, what massive buildings. 
Because of its magnificence for many Jews, this temple meant more to them than who was meant for. And unfortunately, it had become an idol. It, uh, they were paying attention more. It had become an, such an attraction that they were more paying attention to the building itself, to the structure, than who it was meant for. Then in verse 2, it says, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Can you imagine the look on the disciples' face as Jesus said, Yeah, you see that building there? You see that temple? It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be flattened. It's going to be gone. What do you think would have gone through that, through through their minds? It'd be kind of like you and I walking into AT&T Stadium. And I, and I told you, yeah, this place is going to be flattened in a few years. It's going to be destroyed and there's not going to be nothing left to this place. How would you look at me? What would you say? What would you like? Would you be like, whoa, I don't know, I'm kind of crazy. You know, it'd be hard to believe. Historians have said that the second temple wasn't completely finished until 63 AD. The thought of it being destroyed was inconceivable. But sure enough, seven years later, history records that Caesar and his army set Jerusalem on fire and utterly demolished the temple. There was a big insurrection by the Jews. And again, just to make a small, uh, long story short, um, Caesar and his army and the, the leaders there wanted to squash it. So they set the city on fire and they destroyed the temple, this great massive building. They completely flattened it. And Jesus' prediction wasn't a coincidence. It was a prophecy that came true. In Exodus 20, 4 and 5, the second command of God says this, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must now not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Sadly, though, Throughout the Old Testament, this was one of the commands that the Israelites kept breaking every time and stopped every time they, and stopped trusting in God. And each time they did that, they turned to idols. And when they did that, God would punish them and tell them that their idolatry was equivalent to committing adultery against them. Imagine God saying, you know what? As you're worshiping that idol, as you're um, bowing down to that idol, it's the same thing as committing adultery against me. That's how he saw it. What no one ever expected, though, was that one day the idolatry of the Israelites would be directed more towards the structure of the temple rather than on who dwelt within it. Now, this wasn't the case for everybody, but for a lot of people, again, it was just about the structure, about the temple. And that structure meant more to them than who dwelt in it. 
So when Jesus prophesied that this amazing temple would be destroyed, it was hard to imagine that something like that would happen. It's the Israelites, those the Jews living in Jerusalem, they took so much pride in it. That was their, you know, that was their building. You know, no one was ever going to take it away. Likewise, Jesus tends to point out to us those idols in our lives that take place that we that we put above him. He points those out to us and point those out to us. And when he does, we can either choose to reposition God above those idols or wait until he takes it away. If you're his child, if you're he's going to he's going to take away that idol. Sooner or later, cuz he does it he wants he wants your love, he wants your glory. You know, if I saw something that my kids were paying more attention to than me or his mo- or their mom sure we'd be like, "Hey, put that down." You know, um, we want you to pay attention to us. And so does God. He wants to. He wants all your glory. He wants all your attention. So sometimes He'll take away those things that mean the, mean the most to you. Examine your life. Examine your heart. Examine, you know, what you have, whether it be possessions or whether it be, it could be, it could be anything. And ask yourself, if God took it away, how would I react? What would, what would? Would it be the end of the world? Would it be, would I just lose my mind? If that's the case, it's probably an idol. If you truly desire to have no other gods in your life but the one true God, ask Him to show you what those idols are that you're secretly holding within you. I honestly believe He will reveal to you what those idols are and whether you need to get rid of them or whether you need whether what you need to do is reposition God above those idols. All right, so let's pick up let's pick up in verse 3. Um, John chapter 13, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13, verse 3. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across the temple complex, Peter, James and John, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, "Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place. Then Jesus began telling them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be, there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Now, in some translations, you may, it may read sorrows, the beginning of sorrows. Um, but here, this is another, this is what, um, another way of, of saying uh, the beginning of sorrows. Birth pains. Now, I've never been to Israel. I've never been there, but I've been told by those who have that it's a very, it's, it's absolutely beautiful there. My hope that before I take my last breath on this earth that I will be able to take a trip out to Israel just to check it out. You know, I mean, it's some place that I'm definitely interested in going. I've also been told that in Jerusalem, right in between the, right in between the, the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount is a, is a valley. And that valley is known as the Kindran Valley. 
And in that area that Jesus was sitting on, where in the Mount of Olives, there is a spectacular view of uh, the temple, the Temple Mount. Now, it was in a setting that Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, John, and Andrew approached Jesus privately with a couple questions. Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? They wanted to know, when, the when is the destruction of the temple going to take place? That was their immediate question. In verse 5, Jesus begins telling them, take heed. When he says take heed, he means pay close attention to. And gives them four prophetic signs that will occur before the temple is destroyed, as well as signal the beginning of the end. Now, before I elaborate on those four indicators, before I explain those four uh, signs, it's important that when you read and study this chapter, when you, when you study it and just pay close attention to it, that it be done in these four ways. It needs to be done contextually. And it's necessary to keep the text into perspective by remembering who was asking and why it was being asked. It must be studied and read com comparatively. These prophecies need to be compared to other prophecies that are already given and recorded in the Old Testament. It must be studied and read practically. These words are meant to grab your attention by motivating you to look at the world around you for these signs. And lastly, this chapter, the prophecies especially, need to be studied and read I'm sorry, eschatolo eschatologically. I had that word. I was practicing it, practicing it. Um, but it's basically a fancy word for future events. That's all it is, just a fancy word for future events. And, but this chapter must be seen in light of the reality that these events will take place. The first prophetic sign Jesus tells him to watch out for are false messiahs that who will come in his name, saying, I am he. And maybe you've seen some, maybe you've heard some. Um, there have been some pretty crazy people out there who claimed, I'm Jesus, you know, I'm the Messiah. You know, I know growing up I've seen, I've seen the news and I've read a lot and some crazy stuff has happened. Um, some, crazy, some crazy things have been claimed by some pretty crazy people, but some will come pretending to represent Jesus or even claim to be him just to deceive and confuse many people. The second prophetic signs he mentions here is that there will be wars and threats of wars between kingdoms and nations. Peace and security will be a lot harder to find and more challenging to maintain between people and countries. But before he tells them the third indicator, he pauses in order to tell them, don't worry. Don't worry. Because these things must take place, but it's not the end. It's not the end of the world yet. The third prophetic signs, sign Jesus says will occur will be earthquakes and severe starvation because of the lack of food. In other words, natural and man-made catastrophic events will happen a lot more frequently and with much more intensity. And the fourth and final six, uh, signal, sign, is mentioned later on in the, in the passage, which I'll get to in a bit. However, he wants to be clear that these are only the beginning 
of birth pains. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus uses a term that only women who have had babies know what it's like to have birth pains. I mean, us guys, we can imagine, we can pretend, we can, does this feel like a birth pain? I don't know, we, there's no way they can you know, accurately describe it. I mean, they can, but it's just, we will never be able to feel that pain. Again, ask most mothers if they remember the first time they felt those contractions, felt those labor pains, and they'd probably tell you that they do, and when it happened, when they felt that first, like, ah, you know? Um, I'm sure it's a very, mem- uh, very memorable experience. Now, I felt really bad for my wife when I first time, you know, she felt it with, with my oldest son, with Jacobs, when he was about to come out, um, when she was about to give birth. But one of the things I remember prior to that happening was the doctor, with her and the doctor telling me how important it is to monitor the timing and intensity of these contractions. Because she was feeling this pain and she had to just calm herself down, but it was my job to to time it, you know, and to see how intense it it was going to be. I was told that when it got to a certain point, then it was time to take her to the hospital so that she can deliver the baby. I also remember how a couple of times we just jumped the gun and I, I was like, maybe we should go now. It's a little early, but yeah, you know, it's, so we went and sure enough, I said, go home. It's too early. You know, they gave us the boot, kicked us out of the hospital and said, come back when, when it's time. Stop messing around. So, uh, yeah, we were sent home a couple of times because it was too soon to bring her in. So we did. And I just sat and just waited as I watched her in agony and pain. I wanted to take it away, I wanted to help her, but there was nothing I can do. She was in a lot of discomfort, but we had to wait until the time was right. What Jesus is saying here is the importance of remaining vigilant of what's going on in the world. We have to watch out. We, just like a woman going through it, we just have to pay attention to what's going on in the world. False messiahs, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines are mere indicators of the beginning of birth pains. He's, he's telling us to watch for them because as they become more intense and frequent, it's almost time for him to come back. I have no doubt the, that we're currently living in the midst of these labor pains. And as I've gotten older, the intensity has been stronger and the frequency has picked up. In the first 100 years after Jesus spoke these words, no less than 64 men came on the scene claiming to be the Messiah. Now, while we have our share of false messiahs and prophets to this day, false messiahs are no longer just limited to just individual people. There's, false, there's a false messiah in science. There's a false messiah in technology. There's a false messiah in those self-enlightenment movements. And even there's a false messiah in some political ideologies. They're false because they're claiming to have the answers to humanity's problems. You know, you hear, I mean, I read a lot of these tech blogs and, you know, and what's the technology is coming up and 
lot of times they say, yeah, we figured it out. You know, solving technology will solve people's problems. If we just allow robots into Congress and we voted robots in, there won't be, you know, the problem of, of uh, people having issues, I mean, and division and, you know, robots will be able to figure it out. They think they have the answers to humanity's problems. In regards to wars, rumors of wars, researchers Mark Harrison and Nicholas Wolf found that between 1870 and 2001, the frequency of wars between states increased by 2% a year on average. In addition, the way wars are fought are no longer just limited to guns and bombs on a battlefield. Wars between countries are fought through are fought you through various means including economic warfare and the biggest one right now is what cyber warfare that's one of the biggest you know that's a big threat that's what everyone's saying you know we got to protect our computers we got to protect our technology we got to protect because if they can get into that into our computer technology into our computers man they can mess a lot of things up and it's just as dangerous as bombs and bullets. So rather than continuing inciting um, all the catastrophic, all the catastrophic, catastrophic natural and man-made disasters, I just want to challenge you to do the research. Find out whether the, you know, that there's been an increase in intensity in, uh, in natural disasters and in man-made um, catastrophes. All you have, but all you have to do is just turn on the TV and almost, it seems like almost every week there's like a major earthquake somewhere. And in every continent, it seems like people are dying of starvation. And not just in third world countries, but even in certain parts of the U.S. People are dying of, of hunger. When you read and watch the news, don't let it discourage you though. Rather keep in mind that these are only the beginning of the labor pains. And it doesn't mean that the end of the world is going to happen. The labor pains don't necessarily mean the baby's going to come out right then and there. I mean, the, especially the beginning. It just means it's, it's getting close to it. You know, so all you have to do is just keep an eye out. Just watch out. Just watch. Stay vigilant. Stay alert. All right, so let's continue in verse 9. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to to Sanhedrins, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you in that hour, say it. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Then brother will betray brother, to death and a father his child children will rise up against parents and put them to death and you will be hated by everyone because of my name but the one who endures to the end will be delivered Jesus now turns his, his focus back on the disciples on these four disciples and tells them and tells them be on guard be on your guard or in other words stay alert because it wouldn't be long before they'd experience what Jesus was about to go through in just a few short days. They too were going to be arrested. They too would be persecuted. They too would be beaten up. 
And sure enough, in the book of Acts, it tells us that this is exactly what happened. On several occasions, they were also arrested, beaten, all because of their witness of Jesus Christ, all because they were proclaiming Jesus Christ. Then in verse 10, Jesus says, And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, what does that mean? I mean, he, he kind of just inserts it in there. But what, does he, what is he trying to say here? Now, in order to understand this verse, it's important to remember that Jesus was answering their two questions from verse 4. That is, the events that would signal the destruction of the temple and when, and when that would occur. And this is where we find the fourth prophetic sign of what must take place before the temple is destroyed and signal the beginning of the end. That sign, he said, was that the gospel would be preached to all nations. Now, it's interesting because the way we understand nations is completely different than how the disciples understood nations during the first century. Here, Jesus was speaking about the, the, the known Mediterranean world. That was the known world at that time. And how the gospel was going to be preached across that world, across those nations, across that region. In Acts, again, you can see how this prophecy was fulfilled by how quickly the gospel spread throughout that region because of persecution. The disciples persecuted, rounded up, beaten, and then they, they started heading out. They started, they were beaten and persecuted in Jerusalem, and then they started going throughout the regions. It just started spreading out, and next thing you know, the gospel is spreading like wildfire all over the region and sure enough that prophecy the way he said it the way he meant it was fulfilled what this verse reveals to us to me and to you is that this God that the gospel of Jesus Christ must first be proclaimed throughout the entire world before he comes back supporting missionaries is not not only ensures that lost people get saved but it also brings us closer to his arrival as they go out to those unreached areas, to those people. There, did you know there's a huge group of people that have never heard the gospel, even in, in this time in the 21st century, that have never heard about Jesus Christ? If you've ever felt the Lord may be leading you to this work, to the missions field, to be a missionary, I urge you, don't neglect it. Don't neglect that calling. Obey it. Who knows? He may use you and the work you're doing to reach that last people group that have never heard the gospel. And next thing you know, we're at home with him. He comes for us. Who knows? I love what it says in Romans 10, 15, but how can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? 
And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet are of those who announce the gospel of good things. You know, don't neglect that calling. That's what he's pulling you to do. That's what he's calling you to do. Well, after mentioning that, Jesus gives them a reassuring promise. During those times, they are imprisoned and questioned. He tells them in verse 11, Don't worry beforehand what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you in that hour, say it. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. If you go back and you, go and you read Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 13, it mentions that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and gave stir, stirring testimonies to the saving work of Christ. The same Holy Spirit that's in them, that spoke through them, empowers us to say the right thing at the right moment when we least expect it. Let me explain. From my experience, the Holy Spirit has used me the most during situations that have happened naturally and that aren't planned. What I've come to discover about sharing the gospel, and this is just my experience, when I force myself to do it, when I force myself to, I got I to gotta do it, I got to share the gospel, I got to talk to that person, and, and, you know, when I force myself to do it, I tend to rely on my own knowledge and strength to convince people of what, that what I'm saying is true. I'm doing the work. I'm trying to convince them, I, you know, I'm forcing myself to do this. However, well, what I found out that when, this, when it's done this way, I always leave frustrated and I leave feeling defeated. However, when I allow things to naturally occur, occur when I just allow things to naturally happen, more often than not, not, I find myself in situations where all of a sudden I'm sharing my testimony. I'm sharing the work Jesus Christ has done in my life. It's not planned. It's not, I haven't, you know, set anything up. It just happens. And as a matter of fact, it just happened. It kind of, yeah, it happened um, this past Thursday. Just hanging out with some people and someone asked me about something that happened to me in my past. And for the next 10, 15 minutes, I was just talking. Like I almost kind of, but it wasn't like, it wasn't as if I was taking over the conversation. You know, I mean, they were listening intently. And, and again, after I left, I'm like, wow, Lord, you're awesome. I wasn't expecting that. You know, it just happened. It just happened naturally. I've learned during these moments that it's not my wisdom. It's not my power. But the Holy Spirit using me in that circumstance to speak to that person or to speak to those people. Those are the situations that have been the most fruitful. And don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with learning and memorizing scripture, studying to prepare a Bible study, which is what I do here. You know, I study to prepare a Bible study. And I'm not against evangelizing. I certainly believe that there's a time and a place where the Holy Spirit can use those things to bring people to Christ. 
And I also believe that He can absolutely give you the words to say during those times that you find yourself completely off guard or unprepared. All I'm saying is that the power behind the gospel of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with you and your own knowledge, strength, and ability. The power of the gospel comes directly from the Holy Spirit. You just have to be open to it. You just have to just allow Him, allow the Holy Spirit to work. Now, again, as Jesus continues to tell them what to watch out for and expect as His followers, he, touch, he touches on the sensitive subject of family. Now, my family means a lot to me. I would do anything for them. I'm sure all of you would. There, you know, I've learned, you know, I grew up learning to provide for my family, take care of my family. So when I hear about family, you know, it's, it is a sensitive subject for me. One of, the most, one of the most difficult problems with the early church, that the early church had to wrestle with, was the issue of those who betrayed the faith under persecution. There are those who, who caved and betrayed their own friends, parents, their brothers, and their sisters to save their own necks. In fact, he says in the beginning of verse 13, um, you will be hated by everyone. Yes, we, I'm, I'm glad that we don't have, we're not living in that time right now. We're not living in that time where that persecution, but that would be rough. Living in that time and, you know, next thing you know, my kids are pointing at, yeah, he's, he's a believer in Jesus. Man, that would break my heart. But it, it would think it would be just as break, heartbreaking to see a father doing that to his own child. Yeah, my child, he's a, he's a Christian. Take him away. I hope we never have to see it. I hope we never have to experience it. But it's just, man, it would be rough. To be hated by people would be rough. By this point, I was, if I were one of the four disciples, I'd probably be asking myself, man, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can, I don't know if all this is worth it. Well, I'm glad Jesus ends with these encouraging words, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. The word endures is translated from the Greek word hupomeno, which literally means remain under. In other words, what Jesus was saying, the one who remains under me to the end will be saved. Now again, I don't know your situation. I don't know. Maybe some of you have lost really good friends and close family members because you chose to follow Jesus. I know I have. I've lost a lot of, you know, I don't talk to a lot of my family. I've lost a lot of good, great friends. But let me, let me remind you, Jesus went through the same thing. He knows what, that like, what that's like. He was also um, rejected by some of his family members, and he was betrayed by one of his own, by one of the disciples that he ate, laughed, spent time with for three years, three full years, and his disciple betrayed him. So he knows. He knows what that's like. He knows what that pain is like. And again, let me encourage you with those words. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And again, I don't know if some of you, um, some of you are now hated and despised by people you care about the most because you, are faith you faithfully proclaim the name of Jesus. If you have, I'm sorry. I truly am. But guess what? 
you have a savior who also knew what it was like to be hated and despised. That's why, that's why Jesus said in John 15, 18, the world, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it even hate, before it hated you. If you're currently feeling this pain, again, let me remind you once more, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. Brothers, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, we've all suffered through similar losses and have been hated by family and friends. However, as we mature, we, 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 as we mature, we begin to have a deeper understanding of what it means to hupomeno, to remain under Jesus Christ. I'm not going to lie, this world is a mess. It's a mess out there, and it's only going to get messier. And these are just the birth pains. These are, this isn't even the tribulation, the great tribulation that's going to happen. I'm going to be covering a lot of that next week. And what's going to happen, what I believe is going to happen prior to that. But these are just the birth pains, guys. We can't afford to sit idly by and pretend that the signs of Jesus' imminent return aren't there. You can choose to ignore it or pay attention to it. Whatever you decide, nothing is going to stop Jesus from coming back. You can set it to the side and put those blinders on and just be like, everything's going to be okay. I have enough time. People have enough time. But again, that's not going to stop Jesus from coming back. He's going to, he is. Let me ask you, will you be ready when he does or will you be unprepared? Regardless of all the trials and difficulties you're facing, will you continue to endure to the end or will you buckle under pressure? Let's pray. God, thank you um, once again that you've given us your word, that you've given us signs to look out for, prophecy, that you care about us so much that you don't want to leave us in the blind. Lord, I pray that we'll just continue to pay attention, continue to watch for these signs, Lord, knowing that the time is near. Give us the heart of, of courage just to go out there and preach to those. Not preach, Lord, but just share the love of Christ that those who, to those who don't know it, Lord, that they may come to the saving knowledge of you. If you've never come to know Christ, and just in the quietness of your heart, just pray, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I'm a sinner, and I just ask that you come down and just heal me, Lord. I repent of my sins. I turn away from them, and I choose to follow you. I believe Jesus is Lord and I choose to make him the Lord of my life. Thank you for forgiving, forgiving me and my sins and just fill me with your Holy Spirit now, Lord. Thank you for this again this morning, Lord, and I just ask that you continue to be with us as we fellowship now and as we go about our Sundays and throughout our week, Lord. Fill us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen.